Hello, this is Toby Haydock's Who's Round, and nothing can prevent the catharsis of spurious podcastery or something. Now then, I've been online and I've waded through the six or so messages left on the internet about these podcasts. And I can't, apart from a couple of people who just go, oh, God, not another one of those. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Why do you hate Robert Mugabe? He's horrible. If he did a podcast, it'd be rubbish, a bit mad. And frankly, he probably doesn't even know who Brian Hodgson is. I know, he thought he was evil before. Anyway, apart from those generously spirited souls that make being a fan of Doctor Who such fun, the consensus seems to be that people were somewhat vexed by the snap, crackle and pop that have been the trademark of my cack-jawed recording method. Now, whilst we have to be guerrilla-style just for time and practicality, I am not unsympathetic to your aerial comfort. So, I have purloined another piece of kit from a generous chum, uh, and that is what I'm using now. Hopefully this will provide for a better experience, and if the resultant interview is pop-free but inaudible, well, that's your fault. Now, I'm off to chat to a husband and wife and pair-bonded thesp couple, who were, in different stories, by the same writer, under the direction of two very different helmsmen. If this equipment doesn't work out, I'll be in a devil of a stew. So let's hope I don't get chucked off the roof of their building. They leave this bit. Oh, look at that. Where I say I've pressed record, they, they, they keep that in, just to... Just to expose my lack of professionalism. <laughs> so, well, here we are. I'm dependent on the kindness of strangers once again, and I've been let into the house of not one but two people from Doctor Who. So, um, so I'm going to ask them uh, to say who they are and why I'm talking to them about Doctor Who. Yes. Well, I'm Adrienne Burgess, and I played. Veet. Veet, that's right. You have to call on the memory. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't saying do it quickly. <laughs> that was your name. <laughs> that's right. Veet, I was, yes, that's right. Yes, I played Veet in um, an episode called The Sun, in four, four episodes called The Sunmakers. Yes, and my name is Martin Cochran, and I played General Chalak in The Caves of Androzani. Uh, and the reason we're both together is not because we're at a Doctor Who convention, or it's because no. Doctor Who actors hang out with each other and socialise. It's because you are you are married. Were you were you married when you were in the Sunmakers? No, no, I didn't know no. Martin when I was in the Sunmakers, actually. But we both knew Pennant Roberts separately, and I worked with Pennant on Doctor Who, and then Martin came to London. Is that right? Yes, yes. I'd worked with Pennant on um, a series called Sutherland's Law, which we we shot up in Scotland. And you can probably hear I'm, I'm a half-breed, I'm half-English and half-Scots. So we did three years on a, on a series up there, which we shot around Oban, up in the West Highlands. And then we met up through, when did we meet up? 81. 81, One, was it? 81. We did a, a tour, we were both cast in a play by Somerset Maugham, um, Home and Beauty it was called, and we toured for the Oxford Playhouse. That was when we met. That was when we met, and then we both discovered that we knew um, Pennant. Uh, but you're, uh, well, Martin, you're from Scotland, but you're from Australia. I'm from Australia, mm-hmm. indeed, yes. So what brought you to the UK? Right, to be an actress, because that's what, um, you know, it still would be the case that many actors from Australia would want to be here. There's much more work, um, though the work, of course, in Australia now, some is a very high quality. But anyway, I came over here to study, and um, and then I just stayed, and um, I've, been there, I've been here really since I was 18, so it's my home now. 
Do you go back much? Used to, um, while my mother and father were still alive. And uh, I have a brother there, so I, and a sister, so I, I do go back, you know, whenever opportunity presents itself, uh, maybe every couple of years. And did you, did you train when you came over here? Or well, over yes, I did sort of train in Australia, actually. I did a lot of work. Um, my mother was a speech and drama teacher, very good one. And so she, uh, so really I did it all my childhood. Um, and then I came over here and I went to Bristol University and read drama and English and did plays all the way through. So I didn't have a kind of formal training in the sense I didn't then go on to the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School because I then got a job in theatre straight away. So I, um, I just started to have a career. And what about you, Martin? Um, well, I was born in London, in South London, and then we moved up to Glasgow. My dad is from Glasgow, my mother's from London. And um, I trained in, in Glasgow. Went to the, the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, as it's known up there. And did a, did a, a joint course with Glasgow University. Um, and then I'd been working, I'd started working while I was a student in theatre. I was allowed to go out because I used to sing and play guitar. And uh, was encouraged to work with various people at the Glasgow Citizens Theatre. Um, did a lot of late night shows and things. So I was kind of working before I left um, drama school and uh, I trained as a teacher but I'd never planned to teach, that came much later. So both of you had the thing of, especially I suspect then as opposed to now, where it's actually quite good to have an accent because it means casting directors don't have to think. Mm. Uh, that was hard, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, is that, did you have to, was one of the things you had to do was to disguise yourself? I mean you Martin, particularly when I think of the parts that I most think of you for playing, uh -huh. it's British authority figures, senior policemen, yes. you know, officials and that sort of thing. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, <clears throat> I mean, part of the training certainly was to lose the accent and do the, the received pronunciation or the RP, as it was called. Um, and being in Glasgow, that was such <laughs> that was such a funny process for people because the Glasgow accent is quite far back in the, in the, the throat. So to bring it all forward in the mouth was a huge thing that everybody used to trip over and fall about laughing. But yeah, we had to lose the accent. But I played, when I, when I worked, I worked in Scotland for about 13, I think it was about 13 years before I moved down to London. You did take the high road, didn't you? I did take the high road in Sutherland's Law and there was various, the, the, first, the first soap that STV ever did, which, which will remain nameless, <laughs> um, and various things up there, and most of them were, were Scottish parts. But when I moved south, I didn't want to get stamped with the old um, typecasting of being the Scottish actor. So I worked quite hard at losing the accent again, um, even for the interviews. You know, so uh, it's, a, it's a funny set that uh, lots of casting directors and some directors, sadly, in the in the southeast around London, can't imagine that people from anywhere else in Britain can lose their accent. That they can only do wherever it is they come from, and yet also think that actors who are London actors can do any other accent. So, so the RP is the base for which right. people can build. <coughs> yes. Yes. So then the accent becomes a bonus rather than a fault. Um, so yes, I did a lot of... Uh, w w the thing that we met on, Home and Beauty, it was uh, for, uh, after the First World War and it was cherry clipped. Yeah, it? you play it. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, a very similar accent, in fact, to General Chalak. Mm. Um, Quite a similar performance in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> the same old performance. Yes. No, not really. <laughs> it wasn't. It no. was very different. But it, no, but it was that kind of character actually. That's Just right. a funny one. Yes, he was. He was yes. a military man. Yeah. Yes. 
Now, Pennant did a thing with you, which he was quite famous for doing, probably more so than any other director working in the BBC at the time, is that your part in The Sunmakers was written for a man. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and there weren't any female parts apart from Louise Jameson in The Sunmakers. Oh. But without changing a line, he would give yours and Janina Scott's part were both written for men. Oh. Uh, and he did that later on. He gave, with slightly less good results, Ingrid Pitter parts that was, was oh, written right. for a man, which resulted in her karate kicking a lopsided sea pantomime horse. But, um, <laughs> but we won't talk about that. So, um, <laughs> I mean, was it getting parts as, as a female actor... Um, that were interesting in the sort of late seventies. Was that was that something that Pennant was trying to do because there was a problem there? It's interesting. I never discussed it with him. I would have thought he was fairly aware um, of the kind of of the women's movement, I suppose. Mm. And probably he, I mean, he liked women. I mean, Pennant always liked women in a lovely way. And it may be just that he didn't want to be partly they didn't want to be surrounded by men. I don't know. It was just that he thought this is ridiculous. It's much more interesting to have women on mm. the screen as well. Um, I don't know. Do you have any idea what what his motivation I d- was? I don't know. He he. It just seems to be a meme of his. And of course, he was one of the directors of Tenko. He so he seems right. to have been a, a, interested in, in in good women part. Good women women part. part. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's always yes. Maybe it was. I can't imagine it was an ideological thing, but it might. No. Have been. I mean, the, the overriding thing about Pennant that I remember was that his main principle was to build a good team. For any production yeah, he did, right. that seemed to be the most important thing. So I suspect the balance of the sexes—I can only guess—but mm. the balance of the sexes in those episodes um, was important to him. Sure. Yes. It's interesting because he is—he is universally well liked from everybody I've spoken yeah. to. Yeah. But if you talk to Doctor Who fans, he's not the most highly regarded director mm-hmm. because he's not. He doesn't do visual flourishes mm. and, and right. the pacing isn't say with Graham Harper. Graham Harper, yes. Yours, yeah, yeah. Who, I mean, is probably yes. a class apart. Mm. But, yes. but Pennant's productions always seem to be a bit sort of safe and solid rather Pedestrian. than inspired. Yeah. I mean, I think that's quite right. I mean, it's not, you, don't, you don't think, wow, lots of interesting shots with Pennant. Pennant's skill, is that annoying or should we turn no, it No, it's fine. Pennant's skill is um, that he is the building of the team, isn't it? And so he handled, I mean, he handled Tom Baker like nobody else. You know, he really handled him very well. And um, I, I, that's, that's what he brought, wasn't it? Mm. And so, yeah, I can imagine that he's, you know, he's not the most visually excited. We used to sometimes say that, oh, another cowardly three shot. (laughs) 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 So what sort of handling did Tom Baker need? Well, um, I wasn't that aware of it because he quite liked me. And um, he liked, you know, he's an obsessive reader, Tom. And people used to give him all these books. And uh, so he always had piles of hardbacks in his, uh, in his dressing room. Whether he also bought them, I said, well, I have no, no idea, but I know people gave them to him. And, um, he, and he saw me reading one day, and I used to be a fairly obsessive reader. So he used to forever would be bringing in armfuls of books, which I would take home. So he and I got on quite well, and he wasn't difficult. But I was sometimes aware of tensions and 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 Pennant talking and <coughs> Tom talking and Pennant <coughs> letting him talk and I was just kind of aware that there was some handling going mm. on. Whereas Peter Davison, a different kettle. I mean, it was his last story that yes. he worked on. So, yes. So was there a, was there a feeling of sadness? I don't get the impression Peter Davison's a, te- a terribly sentimental person. There were, I don't remember any feeling of sadness about it at all. No. Um, the the important thing was that we didn't know who was taking over. 
right until the very last minute when we did the transition shot. So we were all kept in the dark. So that was the, the main question about the production was, who's the next one, you know, and how's this going to be done? Um, but no, I don't remember anything, um, any sadness about, about Peter himself. You know, no. Peter, he's always going from one thing to another, wasn't he? Yes. I mean, he probably had about 10 series, something else yes. lined up. Yeah. With Tom, he was on, I think that Tom's one of the best Doctor Who's. I think that, you know, he's, he was so quirky as a person and visually, how oh, little wonderful voice, you know. I think he was pretty special. Yes. Yeah, he was at a sort of transitional period because he'd, he'd gone from being this, um, you know, or obviously a National Theatre trained, you know, trained actor, but he was working on a building site when he got Doctor Who. Oh, was he really? Uh, so he was very grateful and, you know, very duffing his cap and, and oh. really pleased. But by the time you came on, he was Doctor Who. Yeah. And at the end of episode one of The Sunmakers, when he's being gassed, he sort of does a look towards camera and raises his eyebrow. <laughs> and you can see him start uh-huh. to sort of... He's taking control and right. he's getting a bit bored and he's uh-huh. trying to play about a little bit. Uh-huh. And so the director needs to be have to manage him in a way that perhaps mm. earlier on in the career he didn't yeah. need to be managed. That yeah. makes sense. Mm. Yes. Whereas you, as we, we touched upon, Martin, you, it was the first Doctor Who that was done by one of its most highly thought of directors, Graham Harper. Graham Harper, yes. At the time, as a viewer, it was very much, wow, this is making television like you make a soap opera, yes. three cameras, three walled sets, and suddenly the camera's moving, there are crossfades, yes. boom, 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 boom. So how did that translate to the to the work? It, were you aware that you were working with a director who was a, in a different class? Yes, I'd, I'd worked with Graham before, um, but I must say he hadn't... The, I remember the, the shots that he did, we did an episode of Angels, the, the Nurses series, and there was no... Not, I don't remember the kind of innovative sh- shooting that he did in in the Doctor Who when we did Angels. He probably realised it wasn't appropriate. No, sure. Um, but he certainly, he came full of ideas to the Caves of Androzani and it was it was quite extraordinary because, as you, you'll possibly remember, there's lots of shots where one actor is in the foreground facing the camera and the other actor is in the background. Mm. So we very rarely got face-to-face, which is the norm mm. um, in television and in theatre. You know, you're talking to the other actor, but so often... We were talking to the back of the head of the other actor. It's interesting, though, because as an actor, of course, when you're then doing something that requires a lot of technical stuff because he's got the picture, sometimes performance can suffer. And yet Caves of Androzani is one of the strongest ensemble casts the show's had. And those scenes between you and the ones that you're talking about where you're looking away from Peter Davison and he's behind you and he's sort of joshing with you and you're sizing him up. And then when he realises it gets serious, the drama there where he's going, look, there's been a a cock-up here and you're... And he's realising that you might just be about to sentence him to death. <laughs> yes. Suddenly, gets there's a real sort of grown-up tension there. It's quite unusual for Doctor. Yes, Who. it's a real palpable drama. Yes, it's good drama. I think very good drama. And so uh, he's, you know, he's this flourishing director. Or did he let you? Did he cast well and let you get on with it? No, I think all? he's. Um, I think he he does cast well, and he he essentially trusts his actors, but he's also very interactive. Um, I wouldn't say he's not a dictator. On the floor, but he's hi- when we were shooting it, he was hardly in the gallery. He was down on the floor all the time, so constantly adjusting and readjusting, and very open to ideas as well. But he came with very, very definite ideas of how he wanted to shoot that, and and we played it, you know. And it's that thing of we trusted him. So if he said, "Listen, it works that way," you go, "Well, okay. If it looks good, that's fine." It's interesting that both your scripts are by the same writer. 
Yes. Ah. Obviously very different intent. Yes. Dragon's Army is a sort of action adventure drama tragedy. Mm. Whereas the Sunmakers is a satire on the tax system. On the tax system. system. <laughs> he said to me, I remember walking along a corridor <laughs> with him and he said, you can tell this is written by a man who's had, a bit, who's had bitter experiences with the inland revenue. Uh, he's quite funny about it. So. Well, they, um, they escaped down a corridor called yes. the P45 return route. <laughs> <laughs> P45 return, yes. And what was it? We had to find our... I can't remember. Oh, yes, and it's quite gu- a lot. the guards are called the Inner Retinue. Uh, the Inner Retinue. In that revenue. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> and you've got, but obviously slightly more colourful performance than that, you've got Richard Leach yes. and Henry Wolfe yes. giving gorgeous, yes. but larger performances. Yes. And you threw Richard Leach off the roof. I did. I did. Richard Leach. Older actor. Yeah. Lovely actor. Magnificent, yeah. I know, I worked with him before. I'd worked with him before on a series called Dickens of London. And uh, he's a remarkable one. He was, um, I think he's dad, you know, in Home and Beauty, who played the lead, the girl. Oh, oh yes, Eliza. Eliza. Eliza, Eliza. Yes. She's his, Eliza. He was her father. Ah, yes, of he course, yes, father. I remember that now, yes. Well, he's dead now, but mm. obviously. And uh, yes, and he was stone deaf. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But he had, uh, he's one of the most interesting Deaf people, I, my mother was very deaf, um, but she had hearing aids. She wasn't as deaf as um, as Richard, but she was pretty deaf. Uh, but Richard was stone deaf, and there were no, no hearing aid could help him. So he was so outgoing. It's just remarkable how he coped. Having a deaf mother, a deaf mother, I n- know how difficult it is. And um, yeah, he just he just insisted everyone looked at him. You know, he's very open about it. I won't hear you, darling. You know, you must look at me. And then you had, and there were, and there were tricks so that if his back was towards you, and he had to have a cue, there were various things that were sorted up. With somebody he was looking at would give him the sign, of the thing he couldn't hear in the voice. Mm. Um, and I just greatly liked him, and and greatly admired the way he coped with that disability. Fantastic. And you've got uh, cast-wise, you've got to, you're an, an illustrious baby from you know ballet dancer Christopher Gable, indeed, and, yes, know, professional hard man Morris Reeves, who's <laughs> a, you know a mercenary par excellence, and then Robert Glenister as your very yes tricky android sidekick. I mean, it was it was a good good company, very good, very good cast, yes, and uh, of course Robert playing the two parts or the two same parts as it were, the android and, and the humanoid, um, yes. Very talented crew. I mean, that was part of. That's part of the 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 riches I think that Graham was using, in those episodes, um, that he he drew people out, and moulded, but also, as I say, reacted, in a very positive way to ideas that were offered to him. Yeah, he did cast quite strong and interesting people. Didn't yeah. He? Yes. Yes. But what's interesting as well is that you. I was looking at. Okay, so that some of the Robert Holmes has. A gift for sort of language, uh-huh. but a lot of it in the wrong hands would not. You've got lines like saying, you know, Shari's jet gets his hand on gas weapons, will be in a devil of a stew. And I would contend that a lesser actor would have stiffened his back and turned it into, will be in a devil of a stew. But you don't. You play him as a. Uh, and, and Chuck, who on paper and sort of in the plot is the. on the side of, you know, he's the. he's the. he's the chief of the army. Yes. But actually, he's. he's as conniving and as duplicitous as everybody <laughs> everybody in the case of Andrew and it's horrible yes I also I always saw him as the baddie with a heart of gold rather than the conniving one um, that he was he was on that side but he was also quite human um, yeah well as far as you're concerned he's doing the right thing absolutely yes because and I, he needs to get 
Charis Jack, even though that's right. we see Charis Jack and we sort of feel sorry for him. Yes. So uh, it's a pretty yes. grim story where you all die as well. <laughs> right. Died the, the great flood of porridge. Yes. yes. Which didn't quite work, did it? That was your, your death was slightly Yes, flushed. Yes, it was. They just I, I think they just didn't have the the container area for that. They had a lot of um I can't even remember now what it was. It was a lot of cork <laughs> and liquid of some kind that we threw and, and the idea was that I was in a in a corner and this great flood came down and swept me away. But that never quite happened. We saw it kind of rushing and then yeah. And then dead. you were dead. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> but you do know, I'm sure you do know, because you were on a DVD documentary, so I'm sure somebody told you that Caves of Androzani, even in light of the new series, yes. has been voted by readers of Doctor Who magazine as the best Doctor Who story I know. of all time. It's quite extraordinary, because the, the stuff I've seen recently, I mean, since David Tennant um, et al., um, I think is, you know, the effects they have are just a different league mm-hmm. from the effects that we had then. So I'm amazed, but obviously delighted. <laughs> but uh, do, you, do you think still think it stands up? I mean, have you seen it recently? Yes, yes, I watched it. Um, when did I watch it? About, um, about nine months ago. Yes, it does. Absolutely. And do you, do you ever stick the Sunmakers into the? Yeah, uh, funny enough, I did when we, it came out on DVD. I got it. We got a copy, didn't we? You got what? Yes. It and we watched it. I was really struck at how brilliant Louise was. I mean, she's such a powerful actress. I wish I always knew. I, when I met, met Louise, we were both sort of in our first jobs at in St Andrews in Scotland, and uh, we had this read through. We were playing each playing an air hostess in uh, Boeing. Boeing, it's a farce there, and uh, Louise was playing the German air hostess, and she, sitting in this read through, she just stood out, so powerful. You know, she was the youngest in the company. But really, such a strong actress and a Royal Shakespeare Company type actress, you know, and um, and that's what you know. Watching watching the Sunmakers, I thought, yes, she brought all that passion and skill and depth to that mm. character. I'm not surprised that that's been one of the most famous Doctor Who. She's been one of the most famous uh, companions. Companions, yeah. yeah. And and I and I I think she's a you know a very strong actress. And she's been one who's worked. Subsequently, that's right. Has worked a lot subsequently, and who's also, um, you know, worked hard at, you know, loves her fans and, uh, you know, and has cared for them. But it's it's a performance. I really was struck. In Mm. fact, I rang, I sent her an email saying, "You are really talented." (laughs) (laughs) Well, which is of course, and the reason I am here is because Louise sent you an email (laughs) and said, "Let this waif and stray (laughs) into your house." (laughs) So, um, so you've both known her for for a long time. Yeah. So I've known her since. uh, 1972 I think the sea or 71 the season in St Andrews um, mm. and then you met her obviously through me through me or did you through you yeah, I don't think we worked together beforehand I certainly don't remember it no. we've worked together since but that was mm. yeah. well and, and of course well, you've of course Doctor wasn't your only foray into science fiction because you did Blake 7 as well yes 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 that's you right you were a drug addict yes I was I played these attractive <laughs> characters then. that's right yes yes so um you, you didn't do any more science fiction, did science you? Fine. No. no. No, you did the, the no. thing that 
first struck me that you did after Doctor Who that was um, that I because I always looked out for Doctor Who actors. I was always pre pleased when they were doing well. Right. And specials came along. Yeah. Specials, and you yes. were top top bill. Phil, yes. Was, you were the star of specials. That was filmed in Birmingham. It was, yes. Um, well, and it certainly. had a really good theme tune. I remember that. <laughs> uh, and but it was just one series. It was, yes. Um, it was a strange setup because. We, again, it was a good team. We really enjoyed doing it. And it seemed to achieve and hit all the targets they'd set it. And then it just died to death. We were all, all, on, the, on the last day, we all went off with the promise of see you all again in, I can't remember, two, three months' time. And uh, we never heard anything, anything more about it. Um, not even a sorry guys it's not going to happen no they never even got touched to say we're not doing it I'm still still waiting for the call you know Um, that's just in pre-production hell (laughs) (laughs) but there was another series being done and there was there was talk and it was all gossip as to which series would run and the other series ran did it did the other series go yes and it was it was reckoned because the producer had financial interest in some of the I think there were horses or there was something going on whether there was any truth in that or not i have no idea but it was a, it was a, a shock when it didn't go again because you know, it got the viewing figures and that's that's an actor's lot um and, you, and then you but then you played another policeman um you did <laughs> uh, many. the film patriot game i refuse to call it patriot games american listeners <laughs> if you say you speak english speak, speak it like properly. what we does <laughs> uh, so you know you've done film as well and uh, yes you, you came to a sticky end in that I did indeed, yes. Um, a brief and uh, sticky end, yes. But uh, you, Adrian, you, you decided to... You, you, you had this amazing other career subsequent to acting where you've become an expert in fatherhood. <laughs> I was... All the time I was... Not all the time, but a lot of the time I was being an actress, I was also a journalist. So I used to write on Cosmopolitan and um, magazine. Yes, and then later on I, I wrote a book on fatherhood because I'd been writing on families and someone asked me to write a book, so I did. And then, yes, uh, I now um, um, I'm co-director of a, a, an organisation called the Fatherhood Institute, and we do lots of work. Uh, um, we do lots of work with mums and dads about um, because fathers are so important in children's lives, and it's often not recognised. I'm not talking about separated fathers; I'm talking about all fathers. And so we also do a lot of work with midwives and teachers and people who come into t- t- um, connect with families because quite often they just talk as though the mums are the only ones who matter and so it's very important if they can look the fathers in the eye and learn their names and because fathers are experts on their children too and uh, and so yes I do very um, interesting work and I'm very lucky. So what spurred your interest in, in the father angle particularly? Uh, well uh, I think we all have our own father's fatherhood stories so there were stories there that things that I wanted to work out in my in my own relationship with my dad but mainly it was that I was writing about families couples to start with and I could see there was a, a need for a book of the kind that I wrote which was called Fatherhood Reclaimed so it was more op- you know it's more that I could see there was a, a niche and a need for it and, but that was very interesting and as I did the research for it then it became quite a passion and so I've been I've had a good um, 15 years out of this haven't I you have indeed very good yes mm. and how about you Martin how's, how's acting because so, acting has changed hasn't it I mean I'm yes talking to Kevin McNally about this about how the Doctor Who's that you made were these three cameras was it? yeah and then television is now more like a film yes and actors who were all trained to work on the stage mm. essentially yep had to adapt from one style of television acting to another. Yes. 
Um, yep. And did that take some doing? Did that happen overnight? I mean, what, what, how, how has acting I changed? It was, it was a gradual change, um, as far as I could observe. Um, and I think it is true that, that in this country, actors are trained to work on stage. In the States, they're trained to work in front of cameras. So the transition to television was, I think, less traumatic for American actors, more traumatic or more tricky for British actors. Um, and if you look at early television, it was very, it was very much televised theatre a lot of the time. Um, but then the gradual shift from rehearsal and recording to just shooting... Um, I don't know quite when that changed. It was, I think it was sort of mid eighties, mid-80s, late eighties. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. I, f- I found it less and less engaging because the thing that I always enjoyed about acting was the rehearsal process. You know, and and like the series I did, Sutherland's Law, we, we would do two weeks on each episode, and we'd do a, f- a couple of days filming, um, but all the work was done um, at rehearsal, and you get to work with lovely people and sit and watch other actors working. And then there'd be two days in the studio to record it. Um, and when it started to change, that you just turned up. I remember doing an episode of London's Burning, and I turned up. And I didn't meet anybody in the cast except the one actor I was working with on the scenes. So I never felt part of the show at all. Um, and at that time, I started, I started training people in presentation and communication and, uh, and presenting myself rather than acting. And uh, that just gradually took my attention and my energy. So I just gradually let the acting go during the sort of late 80s, early 90s. So I did a thing in the West End, early 90s, and then did specials. And then I did, one or two last things I did was um, Heartbeat and Sharp. And then after that... You did The Knock as well. The Knock, oh yeah, yes. They were writing your part up. They wanted you to have a bigger part. I did the, the, the second series of The Knock. And I played the main character's boss. I always call, I always call the, the, these parts the same because the, the character turns up every two or three episodes and tells the, the main guy off for not doing things by the book and warns him, if you do that again, you're out, you know, sort of thing. So it was essentially the same scene each time. So it was a great job. I loved it. Um, and uh, I said to them at the time, because I'd started coaching, and I was, I was going into companies to work with managing directors and chief executives, so when I had the booking, I couldn't change that. So I told them at the start, when I went, did that, um, the knock, I said, listen, you need to book me ahead and give me a warning because I can't change these days. But they assumed, like most companies, that actors are sitting waiting by the phone. And they phoned me up and uh, about some filming for the next week. And I said, I can't do next week. So uh, they said, what? I said, well, I, you either reschedule or you recast. So they recast. So I didn't do any more. So you, you had to make a choice and go acting or, or, yes. or this. And yes. It wasn't this. a hard choice, was it? You it wasn't a hard choice for me, no. I enjoyed like doing it. both. Mm. But <clears throat> um, television work, work couldn't be flexible enough. Um, so, I just, so I just let it go. I just carried on doing the coaching. Um, do you miss it, either of you? I, I miss it. Um, I sort of... Yes, I do miss it. It was one of those things that... You know, I, I had to let it go. I would have been one of these actors waiting around for a few parts here and there. I'd done very well when I was younger. It started to tail off. And I thought, I don't want to be one of those people who's just waiting for the phone to ring. So I just built up all the other parts of my life. But I miss, um, I miss the creative side of it, which always was a way I expressed myself. And that I don't do anymore. And I miss the fun of it. Because actors are, you know, it, it, there's nothing like 
done, you know? Great fun and um, insightful and, and you have great conversations and lots of laughs and that whole social side of it. I mean, being in girls' dressing rooms, you know, sharing dressing room with three other girls, it's so rude <laughs> <laughs> and great. So I miss, I do miss that indeed, yes. Mm. That child play side of it. Yeah, yeah. And you? Um, yes, I miss that side of it, yes. But I, I didn't, I, I noticed I didn't miss the work. Um, I'd always regarded myself <coughs> as somebody who worked as an actor rather than the, the old classic cliche of I am an actor I'd never seen myself as that it's always just been a job for me um, but it's funny because we went to live in Australia and came back in 2005 and when I came back various people said are you going to start acting again and uh, I, initially I said no 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 plans for that and then I, you know that thing when enough people say something to you you go maybe I should listen to this <laughs> so I went and kind of checked out a couple of casting directors and said look here I am now this is what I look like do you think there's work out there for me and they said, oh, yeah, I think so. So uh, I scouted around and found an agent, a um, very good agent who does, uh, has an office in Edinburgh and in London and has a lot of Scottish actors on the books. So I signed up with them and um, have done a few things. But um, this was kind of knocked on the head because I broke my leg um, about 10 months ago. Very bad break. So I've been kind of more or less housebound over this last year. So all the work basically finished. I did, a, I did a strange little film job in this very room where um, I was sitting on a chair and I had my pyjama trousers and my slippers on, but I had the, the collar and tie and the uh -huh. suit jacket at the top and we just did a mid-shot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but obviously I've been limited since then. So, uh, But you're available for audio work. I am, indeed, well, yes. And you're nearly available now. And I'll, I'll soon be able to. I've done a couple of commercials. Yeah. No, I did one commercial last year. No, the end of the, the previous year. So yes, I can I can get around now, mm. as long as there's no running and jumping or dancing <laughs> involved. Well, I've uh, gone over, so I'm going to just ask two brief things. One is that because you are not getting paid, and I am not getting paid, <laughs> and we are not charging the listeners for this, yes. I ask you if you would like to nominate a charity where if people have listened to this and enjoyed it, if they all give a pound, we might raise all about three pounds. <laughs> <laughs> well, they could give it to the Fatherhood Institute. Uh -huh. We need it for our wonderful work with fathers and mothers about fatherhood. And if they go online to the www.fatherhoodinstitute.org, it has a donate button. Excellent. Well, we'll do that. Do you have one as well, Martin? I think that has to be that, the, that, the same one. That's unanimous. <laughs> that's great. Uh, <laughs> I know my place. father who knows what he's doing. <laughs> and uh, so, well, look. Thank you very much a pleasure. for doing this. It's been this. a pleasure. And, yes. um, uh, well, happy 50th birthday, Doctor Who. Indeed, yes. And Absolutely. well done you for doing this. Yeah, <laughs> It keeps me off the street. Yes, it's good. <laughs> I can do it without you. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a pleasure. A pleasure. Absolutely. You're terrific. Bless you. You oh, are, isn't he? No, I yes, can see why good. Louise loves you. Oh, I'm glad we're still recording. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, well, my thanks to Adrian and Martin for being so open and hospitable. And thanks to, to Louise Jameson for setting that one up. Uh, I'm not name-dropping, by the way. She was extremely kind and generous and, and facilitated that interview. Um, went out of her way to do so, which is very kind. And I'll drop your name, frankly, if you've, uh, I don't know, if you've eavesdropped on a sound recordist or made out with a makeup girl or, or even 
got into a costume d- d- designer and could <clears throat> put me in touch with them so that they too can be subjected to somewhat stuttery questions, occasionally punctuated by a really annoying laugh. They'll love it. Uh, and I'll buy them a cake. My tax bill's going to be very odd. You sh- sure you spent £1,729 on Battenberg, Mr Haydock, and that it is a legitimate expense? Um, yes. Now, a forthcoming guest, maybe the next one, we don't know because we're not being chronological because we don't play by no rules, uh, is a very recognisable and fine television character actor who will hopefully give us the inside story on a couple of Doctor Whos. And he knows all about being inside as he spent much of his televisual life in that manner. In this way, he knows the taste of porridge. That's uh, something to listen out for in the future. But in the meantime, this is Toby Hayden. I was abandoned as a child and brought up in the wild by anorex. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Fourth Doctor Adventures, Phantoms of the Deep. Depth, 5,000 metres and counting. What? What is it? Chris? I can see a little hut with police box written on it. At this depth, it should have been crushed. Crushed? I landed a TARDIS in the heart of a star once, barely dented the paintwork. This is Romana. Hello. And this is my other friend, K9. K9? Oh, because he's a dog. Yes, yes, he is. Hang on. Are those lights down there? Pulsing, flickering lights. It is a communication directed at this craft. It is a warning. A warning? The squid say that if we continue, we will all die. This police box of theirs is taking up valuable storage space. Stick it in a sample cage and send it up to the surface. You sent my TARDIS up to the surface. Don't worry. It won't be damaged. That's not what concerns me. Without the TARDIS, we have no way of leaving this submarine. And now the radio is down, we have no way of calling for help. Look, another submarine. Design corresponds with military vessels dating from the year 1940. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.